0: From the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief, with this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. I'm recording this podcast on June 17th. I've chosen three articles today that I think illustrate different aspects of practice. One is an article looking at a new index for preoperative cardiovascular risk assessment, published this week in Jack. Another is a study looking at different types of weaning after uh, mechanical ventilation, which is very relevant to us as we manage more and more critically ill patients in ICUs. And then the last is a look at the current incidence of stroke in patients who've had TAVR. So let's start with uh, this evaluation looking at preoperative risk assessment. This is a study reported this week in JAK. It was a very nice analysis looking at preoperative risk factors. The authors looked at 3,284 consecutive patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery. They were all adults, age greater than 40 years. They had various types of operation, and the outcome of interest was 30-day post-operative all-cause mortality, myocardial infarction, or stroke. The uh, myocardial infarction was diagnosed with both a troponin elevation and either ischemic EK changes and or symptoms. Just a troponin bump was not included as an MI. The stroke endpoint was based on a neurological specialty and confirmatory imaging. The authors derived a multivariable risk model based on these 3,284 patients. They called it the Cardiovascular Risk Index, or CVRI, and this was then validated retrospectively in more than a million patients who were enrolled in the NISQIP database. From 2008 to 2012. There were six independent predictors of risk, age greater than or equal to 75, any history of heart disease, symptoms of angina or dyspnea with regular activities, a hemoglobin less than 12 milligrams per deciliter, vascular surgery, and emergency surgery. And the authors were able to show that if you stratified by the number of predictors from 0 to greater than 3, you could differentiate patients into different risk groups. The low-risk group, 0 to 1 indicator, intermediate 2 to 3, or high, greater than 3 risk markers. And the discrimination, the area under the curve here, was very high, 0.9. In validation, this risk index performed well uh, looking at patients with general surgery, vascular surgery, orthopedic, and other surgeries. The discrimination was high. The AUC was still uh, 08 which is greater than the revised cardiac risk index, which we've been using for years, the RCRI, which had an area under the curve of 0.77. Patients who had none of the six markers had a 0.3% risk of an endpoint. If people had four, five, or six, then the uh, rate was 17.5%. So the CDRI appears to have advantages. It's simple, just has six indicators to pay attention to, And certainly in low-risk patients, its use would seem to reinforce the need to just avoid any other type of cardiovascular testing. Whether or not the CVRI will replace the revised cardiac risk index or other tools that you may use is hard to say, but as a person who has worked in this field for a long time, I really like the simplicity of this. I also like the fact that there are a couple of these indicators that are actionable. That is, a hemoglobin less than 12 we can often correct. Patients with active symptoms of angina or dyspnea, sometimes adjustment of medical therapy, we can correct that. So, there are some aspects to this new risk index that I think are quite attractive, and uh, time will tell whether or not it replaces some of our currently used efforts. So, let's now move to the intensive care unit, and we're talking about the ability to wean patients from mechanical ventilation. This is a study which looked at uh, pressure support during weaning versus T-piece ventilation strategies during spontaneous breathing trials and successful extubation among patients on mechanical ventilation. And it's a randomized trial. So this include ICU patients who had been on mechanical support for more than uh, 24 hours. They had to meet criteria for ventilatory weaning. And they were randomized then to two different types of effort, one was a 30-minute spontaneous breathing trial using 8 centimeters of water of pressure support versus a two-hour spontaneous breathing trial using simply a tee-piece without pressure support. And the primary outcome was a successful extubation without subsequent need for reintubation at 72 hours. They also looked at subsequent reintubation after 72 hours, hospitals day, ICU's day and also both hospital and 90-day mortality. Specific clinical decision-making, including the option of pre-extubation rest periods and so forth, was individualized. So the authors randomized uh, over 1,000 patients, and in the end, 575 were randomized to the 30-minute pressure support effort versus 578 to the two-hour T-piece spontaneous breathing trial and what they found was that a greater proportion of the pressure support group were able to tolerate spontaneous breathing and be extubated compared to the T-piece group at the designated time point and it was 92% versus 84% also the primary outcome of overall successful extubation without subsequent need for reintubation at 72 hours occurred more frequently in the pressure support group than in the group with the T-piece in terms of reintubation, after 72 hours, there was no difference. Interestingly, it looked like at 90 days, there was a lower mortality in the pressure support group, 10% versus about 15%. So the authors concluded that among ICU patients meeting criteria for weaning, They were more often able to be successfully weaned using a shorter 30-minute spontaneous breathing trial with 8 centimeters of water pressure support compared to a longer interval, 2 hours, using a T-piece. Obviously, as cardiologists, we have variable exposure to what I would call critical care and pulmonary medicine, but increasingly we're seeing cardiovascular-intensive care units manned or womaned by people who are both boarded in critical care and cardiology. This is a nice article looking at different types of weaning, and it certainly suggests that a briefer period of spontaneous breathing with pressure support is at least as good as a longer period on a T-piece, and maybe potentially better. So lastly, let me shift gears again to an article coming out this week in JAMA looking at stroke after TAVR. And obviously, as the TAVR experience has grown, we are seeing an increasing number of individuals undergoing non-open surgery aortic valve replacement. And this was a study uh, looking at a very large registry, including patients from over 500 U.S. hospitals collected between November of 2011 and May of 2017. And the article uh, looked at the risk of stroke at 30 days. These were primarily voluntarily reported, and they looked at 30-day rates of stroke, TIA, or either. They also looked at trends over time. There were over 100,000 TAVR patients in this study. Just a little over 2,000 patients had a stroke or TIA, 2.3%. Patients who had a 30-day event rate of stroke were more likely to have had a prior stroke or TIA, peripheral arterial disease, hypertension, porcelain aorta, and or carotid artery disease. The median time from taver to stroke, TI was two days. Interestingly, there was no significant increase or decrease over time in the rate, and there was no difference between sites that did less than 100 TAVR cases versus sites that did more than 100. Clearly, patients who had a stroke did worse. The 30-day mortality was 16.7% versus 3.7% among those who did not. So a couple of interesting conclusions. First, the rate of stroke after TAVR self-reported is about 2.3%. There's been no real change from 2011 to 2017. And it doesn't look like the operator experience or site volume has a big effect. And the predictors for post-operative stroke are, as you might expect, particularly vascular disease and so forth. What to take away from this? Well, first of all, probably self-reported stroke is an underrepresentation of the truth. If patients are seen routinely preoperatively and postoperatively by a neurologist and have appropriate imaging, the rate of stroke in the trials is higher than 2.3%. And it is quite interesting that the rate hasn't really changed a lot. And this probably reflects a combination of factors. If we're technically getting better, then you might expect the stroke rate would drop. But at the same time, if we're taking on sicker and sicker patients, then you might expect the rate to go up. And it's probably, therefore, a wash on the basis of that kind of referral bias. So three interesting articles. We talked about a new preoperative risk index. We talked about ways of mechanically removing patients from ventilators using different breathing protocols. And lastly, the current status of stroke after TAVR. I want to thank you for listening to Eagle's Eye View. I enjoy coming to you every week with an update from ACC.org. I try to pick articles that I think are relevant to practice. As you go on the site, you can find the articles and the journal scans related to them. Also, there's a new educational catalog on ACC.org. You'll find that under Education and Meetings. Using this tool, you can sort the educational offerings we have by various formats, and many, of course, are free. Find us online or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, I hope you have a good one. Thank you.